All right, I was asked to talk today about some cardiovascular drug toxicity. And what I'm going to be talking about today is actually a conglomeration of two lectures. One could actually almost say that there are three. It's just that the beta blocker lecture and calcium channel blocker <coughs> lecture are so close together that they've already been combined into one. And then about halfway through, I hope to get <coughs> to digoxin and other cardiac glycosides. So I'm going to start off with a case. This is a case I guess I saw maybe six, seven years ago, right before I went over to Langdorf's house for Journal Club. So I had the EKG hot in my hands as I uh, went over. This was a 36-year-old woman who ingested 16 pills. She had ingested Valium a week ago, and she kind of got sleepy and was taken to an emergency department, got admitted to the hospital for this parasuicidal gesture, and uh, she kind of liked that. She thought that that was a really great way to get some secondary gain. So she wanted to do the same thing again. She wanted to repeat this experience, so she drank some alcohol, and then she overdosed on her boyfriend's pills. So she arrived and she had stable vital signs and we were all making this big fuss and she couldn't really understand why. Of course, I, I don't really think she ever could have understood why because her mental abilities really weren't at that kind of level. Uh, however, the reason was because of this electrocardiogram uh, right here. So I'm wondering if anybody can point out what the abnormality was that got me and the nurses so excited. I heard first degree, then I heard second degree. If it was a first degree AV block, it should be regular. If it's a second degree AV block, there should be some irregularity to the QRSs, and there's not very much of that at all. But if it's third degree, it can still be regular. So. The P waves just have nothing to do here with the QRSs. It turns out that her blood pressure was okay, and her heart rate was okay, and she was perfusing, at least I presume she was perfusing. Uh, I don't know how smart she was before she took this overdose, but uh, she seemed to be at her baseline. So there's complete dissociation here, complete AV dissociation. So she has third degree heart block here at 420 in the afternoon. So what really happened was she remembered that she took diazepam last week, and she ultimately ended up fine. She got sedated, she got admitted, everything was cool. So it turns out her boyfriend, who's 60 years old, has hypertension, and he has this drug called diltiazem. <laughs> but if you don't know how to read, they really look very similar. The D-I, there's an A-Z-E, there's an M at the end. So obviously it's the same drug. I could easily imagine somebody with a lot more education still making this kind of uh, problem as well. So the question then comes, what do we do with this patient? Anybody have any suggestions what sh we should do? I guess the first one is, do we discharge her or admit her? Admit her. OK, good. We're, we're all on the same page there. So I was concerned she might get worse. She's not too bad right now, but I don't want her to get worse on the floor. I don't want her to get worse in a step-down bed. And so here's some rhythm strips that occurred over the course of about the next day. She got some calcium gluconate IV, and you can see that she <coughs> converted here into what rhythm up here on the top? <coughs> I heard sinus and I heard first degree. I'll agree with that. This is a sinus rhythm with a pretty profound first degree AV block. And then she actually went through several episodes of third degree heart block overnight, but didn't become hypotensive. And the next morning, it pretty much looks like what it did before she had those episodes of third degree block. And on the day after that, she continues to have first degree AV block. So luckily, she survived this. So as far as beta blockers and calcium channel blockers go, this is all you need to know. So if you know this slide already, you can just fall asleep for the rest of the talk. Great. So I wanted to help you understand the pathophysiology of poisoning by beta adrenergic and calcium channel blockers. This requires some amount of biophysics and biochemistry. So you're all going to be happy about that. And to describe the optimal management of patients who've overdosed on these medications, what supportive treatments to give, and what kind of antidotal therapies are available. So beta blockers have a fairly long history. It was 1948 
the whole idea that there are alpha adrenergic receptors and beta adrenergic receptors was first postulated. It was only 10 more years before they came up with the beta blocker and only several more years before propranolol first got marketed in the UK, then in the US. And of course, not too many years after that, the first person dies of a propranolol overdose in 1979. They all kind of look uh, relatively the same, but we're not gonna spend much time on that slide. The most recent report from the collective United States Poison Control Centers shows that there was about 22,000 beta blocker exposures reported. And the person on the other end of the line finds out, oh, was it a single pill? Was it just a question about it? Or did somebody actually take an overdose and were concerned about them? So there was just over 4,000 of these calls that turned into, you really need to go to the hospital. Or they were in the hospital already. And that resulted in 61 major outcomes and five additional deaths. Now the way that the poison control centers define how severe the consequences were is no effect, mild, moderate, and major. And really the ones that we're most concerned about as acute care physicians, the ones that make us tighten up our sphincter tone and think, oh my gosh, we need to do something about it, they pretty much all have to be uh, major here. So it's not all that many people who get very sick but certainly with several thousand of these people coming into emergency departments every year, you're gonna see several of these throughout your career. And among the beta blockers, propranolol accounts for a disproportionate amount of the deaths for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's prescribed for reasons other than hypertension, people who have got migraines or anxiety disorder. Of course, this is gonna increase the chance that they might overdose on them. And also, propranolol is more lipophilic and has more sodium channel blocker properties in addition to its beta blocker properties. So as I mentioned, I'm going to be talking about a little bit of biophysics. Beta adrenergic receptors are coupled to G proteins. So the signal outside the cell turns into a signal inside the cell, that signal transduction, because it activates adenylate cyclase and you get increased intracellular cyclic AMP levels. Cyclic AMP activates various protein kinases such that you get phosphorylation of phospholamban, troponin, voltage-sensitive calcium channels. So what does this cause? When you get phosphorylation of the calcium channels, you get increased calcium influx, which will increase contractility. That kind of makes sense. Beta agonism, increased contractility. The phosphorylation of phospholamban increases the activity of sarcoplasmic uh, reticulum calcium ATPase, which increases the calcium stores, which also increases contractility. And then phosphorylation of troponin facilitates calcium unbinding, which enhances myocyte relaxation, which actually, if anything, decreases contractility, but allows you to contract and relax faster. But the overall effect is increased contractility. And so this is just describing in a graphic form what I said in the last couple of slides. You have outside the cell your beta agonist. It binds to the beta adrenergic receptor. It's coupled to a G protein. Protein activates adenylate cyclase. And all of this other stuff happens in the cell that increases contractility. <clears throat> so the beta-1 adrenergic receptors on the heart, if they're activated, increase contractility, conduction velocity, and increases automaticity. When the beta-2 adrenergic receptors are bound to, you get arteriolar dilatation. If it's in the lungs, you get bronchodilation, which is why we give uh, people beta agonists to breathe when they have obstructive pulmonary disease. And both beta-1 and beta-2 receptors will decrease gut motility. If you activate beta-1 adrenergic receptors on the kidney, you increase renin secretion. The beta-2 receptors on the pancreas, interestingly, increase insulin secretion but usually, at the same time, there's alpha-2 adrenergic stimulation, which decreases insulin secretion. So if somebody's all ramped up and they have a whole bunch of epinephrine and norepinephrine on board, the net effect is that it decreases insulin secretion and you get hyperglycemia. A lot of patients who are under stress, most of our patients in the emergency department, will have hyperglycemia because of this, even though they are not diabetic or even pre-diabetic. That's a normal response. You'll get increased potassium uptake in the muscle, so you'll be relatively hypokalemic, which is something that we uh, also see with patients who are totally amped up or patients who were giving a lot of beta agonists to breathe in for their asthma. You check their potassium after a couple of treatments, it'll be down to 2.5 or something like that. So. 
if we're going to reverse all of that, which I just talked about in the previous slides, we can see and predict the adverse effects of beta-adrenergic antagonists. You'll get bradycardia and hypotension. Well, no duh on that, of course. You give it to people because you want to slow down their heart rate or decrease their blood pressure. Beta-adrenergic antagonists can also exacerbate CHF, exacerbate reactive airways disease. They can uh, exacerbate allergic reactions because actually a certain normal amount of beta-1 stimulation that we have stabilizes our mast cells. And if you block that, you are destabilizing your mast cells. So anyone on a beta blocker is more likely to have an allergic reaction than if they're not on a beta blocker. And if they develop an allergic reaction, it becomes harder to treat because they're beta blocked. You may also see some uh, hypoglycemia. They get a blunting of their sympathetic response. Again, no duh, you're blocking part of their sympathetic uh, system right there. And they get decreased gluconeogenesis. So the clinical manifestations of a beta blocker overdose from the most common to the least common in general. About a third of patients with beta blocker overdose will remain asymptomatic. These are usually the most healthy patients to begin with. Next most common, hypotension, bradycardia. Then you can get impaired cardiac conduction. You may develop hyperkalemia. In the worst cases, you get CNS depression, respiratory depression. And hypoglycemia can occur, just like hyperglycemia if you have too much stimulation. If you block it, you may become hypoglycemic. This tends to be more common in kids than it is in adults. Some properties that might modify beta blocker toxicity. There are some beta blockers that also have this membrane stabilizing ability. Say like propranolol causes sodium channel blockade and you may see a widening of the QRS. The more lipophilic beta blockers, again, like propranolol, will cause more CNS effects, which can be pretty much anything from delirium coma seizures. And then there are some that also cause potassium channel blockade. For an example, sodalol will widen your QT because of this. All right, how do we manage beta blocker ingestions and overdoses? Well, I even hesitate to say ABC's supportive therapy because that should really go without saying, but I guess I just said it anyway. Uh, if you're going to need to intubate somebody, consider giving them atropine first to blunt their vagal response to laryngoscopy. But in the great majority of patients who actually develop some symptoms, develop some hypotension and bradycardia, IV fluids and atropine are often sufficient. You need to consider whether GID contamination is a good idea. If they've got minor symptoms or no symptoms, activated charcoal, just hand it to them, get them to swallow it, that would be great. If they presented early enough, you might consider gastric lavage. And if you're going to do that, again, consider atropine to blunt their vagal response. But there's an increasing number over the last decade or so of people who are ingesting these sustained release preparations, where I would much more strongly consider giving them multi-dose activated charcoal and or whole bowel irrigation, because the longer it stays in the gut, the more of it they're going to absorb. There's a whole range of interventions that can be done to improve inotropy, improve the symptoms of hypotension and bradycardia with beta blocker overdose. Really, there's a whole kitchen sink of things to choose uh, from, and I'm going to be going through these briefly one by one. And glucagon, if there is any antidote for beta blocker toxicity, this is it. Glucagon is the treatment of choice for severe beta blocker toxicity. And the way it works is that it activates the same adenylate cyclase that increases intracellular cyclic AMP, but just through a way that isn't blocked. So if the front door is blocked, you can just get in through the side door this way. But the dosing is considerably higher than is often used for gastrointestinal indications. If you're going to try it, give an initial dose of at least 3 milligrams IV. And then you can repeat bolus or start an infusion anywhere from a couple up to 10 milligrams per hour. One of the interesting things about glucagon, it's usually given in one milligram dosage units. And so you order one milligram, you get one box. If you order three milligrams, you get three boxes. And the diluent that comes along with it contains phenol, which, like everything else, is toxic. But if you take small enough doses of it, it's no big deal. 
if you're giving somebody a milligram here, a milligram there, no big deal. But if you're giving somebody 10 milligrams at a time or putting them on a drip, it can actually cause a problem. So in that sort of case, you would want to uh, dilute it with normal saline or D5W instead. Hopefully, your clinical pharmacologist will take care of that for you. Calcium supplementation, well, it works better, as you might expect, for calcium channel blocker toxicity, but it still does have some benefit for beta blocker toxicity. An adult starting dose would be a gram of calcium chloride slow IV push. This can be irritating the vein, so it has to be a really big vein or a central vein. Uh, if the IV is tenuous, you might want to use calcium gluconate instead. It's a lot less irritating, but it only contains about one-third of the calcium content, so you might want to start with about three grams of this instead and push the calcium kind of up to the upper limits of normal. Here's an interesting idea for a, uh, an insulin drip to treat patients with beta blocker toxicity. It's sometimes called HIE for hyperinsulinemia euglycemia therapy. So we're going to be using an insulin drip in a patient who doesn't have DKA. So we're not doing it to decrease the glucose levels, but to superload the cells intracellularly with glucose. So you give them a lot of insulin, and you give them a lot of glucose so that they don't become hypoglycemic. Uh, and the way that this appears to work is to improve cardiac glucose utilization. Normally, the cardiac myocytes rely upon fatty acid metabolism. But when you poison them, they don't use fatty acids as efficiently, so we're just supplying this other fuel source for them. Well, if somebody took a beta blocker, why don't we just give them a beta agonist? Why don't we just give them a presser, some sort of catecholamine? Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's just very difficult to predict how much of these kind of drugs somebody needs. Theoretically, a pure beta agonist like isoproteranol would be ideal, but in some case reports, very, very high doses are needed. And I've put here a couple of examples of you know, hundreds of micrograms per minute or sometimes thousands, depending upon how sick the patient was. You do have to be a little bit careful because if you're using a beta agonist that also has alpha agonist properties, then you're increasing the afterload. And as the previous speakers have talked about, that can worsen the cardiac failure. So anybody that you're going to be using catecholamines in probably needs an A-line and a pulmonary uh, artery line as well so that you can optimize their hemodynamics. And hopefully the MICU team will be Johnny on the spot so that they can take care of this and you don't have to. Amrinone and milrinone are pretty much falling out of favor. These are phosphodiesterase inhibitors, so they inhibit the breakdown of cyclic AMP. So you'd like to have increased intracellular cyclic AMP levels, and these drugs will do it. And they've been shown to be as effective as glucagon in animal models, but the problem is they cause hypotension due to peripheral vasodilation. And likely, you're going to be dealing with a patient who's already hypotensive. And these drugs also have a very long half-life, so it's very difficult to titrate. Oops, I gave too much. Well, there's nothing I can do about that for the next few hours. So I've never ended up uh, using those. Ventricular pacing. It's not been shown to be a particularly useful modality. You can get cases where, where it will increase the heart rate, but often you will get failure to capture or failure to get an increase in cardiac uh, output or blood pressure. What about just taking the drug out through extracorporeal removal methods? Well, this is going to work best for drugs that mostly stay inside the aqueous component of the body, and therefore we can access them through some sort of central venous access and then dialyzing them. So it's relatively ineffective for the more lipid-soluble beta blocker drugs, but it may be more useful with the more water-soluble beta blockers, say like a tenolol or acibutalol, but any kind of extracorporeal removal is kind of difficult to do in hypotensive patients. So it's rarely indicated. What would probably be better is some sort of mechanical life support, either an intraaortic balloon pump or cardiopulmonary bypass. And there are case reports of remarkable recovery as long as perfusion and ventilation are maintained until the toxin is eliminated. Hopefully, you've got a relatively young, relatively healthy person who took somebody else's drugs. 
They're now sick as hell, but all they need is something to bridge them through the next eight hours or 12 hours or 18 hours while their normally functioning liver and kidneys eliminate the drug. And then probably the briefest mention I'm going to be given is for the newest quasi-antidotal therapy, intravenous fat emulsion. This is the newest kit on the block for refractory shock from cardioactive drug poisoning. Most of the research regarding this is related to patients with severe hypotension or asystole from local anesthetic toxicity, but there are certainly case reports and a few series of this being used for severe beta blocker and calcium channel blocker toxicity. And in fact, there is a recommended dosing protocol that's out there. This is experimental. This is not FDA approved, but you get intralipid, just the same kind of stuff that you would use for TPN. Take the 20% intralipid, give an initial bolus of 1.5 mils per kilo, and follow it by a uh, constant infusion after that, and you can repeat the bolus if necessary, and you can increase the infusion rate if necessary. I haven't had the opportunity to use this yet, but it sounds like a lot of fun. Okay, where do these patients go? We've kind of already made reference to this with the initial case. Any patient who has hypotension, bradycardia, abnormal EKG, or CNS toxicity, I can't imagine sending them anywhere other than the ICU. And then, even if you have somebody whose vital signs are great, but they took a sustained release preparation, they're going to need monitoring for this because they might not develop their hypotension or bradycardia until several hours later. However, if you know that they ingested a non-sustained release drug, non-sustained release beta blocker, they're going to show some hemodynamic effects certainly within six to eight hours. And if you observe them that long and you know that it's not sustained release, this person can be medically cleared and sent to psych if it was a psychiatric problem or just told, don't make that mistake again if it truly was a pure accident. All right, slightly switching gears to the calcium channel blockers. They're a little bit newer than the beta blockers. They have been marketed in the US since the late 1970s and are now the most frequently prescribed cardiovascular drugs. In 2009, there was almost 11,000 exposures to calcium channel blockers reported US poison control centers. Just over 4,000 of these showed up to the hospital for evaluation. 62 major outcomes and 16 deaths a little bit more than with the beta blockers. Calcium channel blockers are well absorbed orally. Most of them are metabolized by the cytochrome P450 system, especially by one particular isozyme, cytochrome P453A4, which is my personal favorite. That's how you can tell somebody is a toxicologist or clinical pharmacologist if they have a favorite cytochrome P450 enzyme. Uh, this happens to be one that is inhibited by grapefruit juice. And so I, I'm always on the lookout for the person who's on a calcium channel blocker comes in hypotensive bradycardic and they thought they were being healthy by taking all their medicines with a grapefruit juice which actually inhibits the metabolism and they're giving themselves an unintentional overdose. So anyway, there's the potential for a lot of significant drug interactions here. Okay, so what does calcium do at the level of the myocardial cell? Well, an action potential will cause membrane depolarization Voltage-gated calcium channels will open, allowing calcium to enter the cell along its electrochemical gradient. And this occurs, as you remember from physiology, at the end of T-tubules in close proximity to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The calcium entry activates the ryanidine receptor, and that opens calcium channels on the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So you get calcium-induced calcium release from within the cell into the cytoplasm. The calcium in the cytoplasm binds to troponin C, inducing a conformational change which displaces troponin and tropomycin from actin, allowing the actin and myosin to interact, and that's how you get muscular contraction. All commercially available calcium channel blockers will block this L-type voltage-gated calcium channel, particularly in myocardial cells and smooth muscle cells. The clinical manifestations of calcium channel blocker toxicity, a lot of this is gonna seem kind of repetitive with the beta blockers. You largely get cardiovascular effects. Well, no duh, like hypotension, bradycardia, like conduction blockade, as we saw in that 36-year-old woman who thought she was taking the diazepam. 
And you also get peripheral vasodilation. And so the patient can look pink, the skin can be warm, but the patient is actually in shock or nearly in shock. So you get warm shock uh, from significant calcium channel blocker toxicity. So that's a little bit different than beta blockers. CNS depression with calcium channel blocker toxicity is relatively uncommon, even in patients who have a very low blood pressure. And so if they do have altered mental status, maybe it's a co-ingestion, maybe it was a beta blocker instead. Hyperglycemia is fairly frequent in calcium channel blocker toxicity, whereas hypoglycemia may be seen with beta blockers. Because the insulin release from pancreatic beta islet cells requires the same kind of calcium influx that we are blocking when we block the L-type voltage-gated calcium channels. And in severe cases, you can see all sorts of terrible stuff happen as well. Management of calcium channel blocker toxicity. Again, ABC, supportive care, blah, blah, blah. IV access, cardiac monitoring, even if they've got normal vital signs initially. Serial 12-lead EKGs, looking for the most obvious, which is bradycardia, and the less obvious, which is some blockade. IV fluid boluses for hypotension. Consider GID contamination. Uh, again, the earlier the better. It's probably more strongly indicated for a sustained release preparation when you would also consider whole bowel irrigation and multidose activated charcoal. The algorithm to use for calcium channel blocker toxicity, very similar to beta blocker toxicity. Start with fluids, atropine, calcium supplementation, a little bit more important with the calcium channel blockers. Push the calcium level just to the higher uh, end of normal, or maybe even a little bit higher than that. Again, vasopressors can be considered. Hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia has also uh, worked. Glucagon, at this point, if you're this far down the algorithm, why not? There's no particular reason to suspect that it's going to work in as antidotal a fashion as for beta blockers, but any little bit of help you can get. There's some experimental drug therapies, which I'm not particularly recommending, including aminopyridine <coughs> and digoxin. And similarly, you can use electrical and mechanical adjuncts as well, like pacing an intraortic balloon pump. Good luck getting those uh, uh, working effectively or in a timely fashion. And so also there is the option of intravenous fat emulsion as well. Similar kind of disposition algorithm, anyone with abnormal vital signs should go to the ICU. You should admit or at least observe for quite a long time sustained release ingestions, even if they're asymptomatic. Consider a multidose activated charcoal and or whole bowel irrigation for admitted patients, especially in sustained release. Although, if you know it is an immediate release ingestion and they remain asymptomatic with normal vital signs and EKG in the ED for several hours, six to eight, pulling a number out of the air, I think these patients can be cleared from the emergency department. Probably a good idea to get a little bit of backup from your poison control center. And so here it is. Here's the slide I showed you pretty much at, at the beginning. That's all you need to know. Yes, sir. So in the whole sequence of treatments, the whole list there, and your average patient that comes in, is it I mean, what comes first, what comes second, third, what are you absolutely going to do, what are you going to wait and see? The, the question was, of all of the choices you have to treat patients with beta blocker, calcium channel blocker toxicity, is there a particular order that they go in? Is there something that absolutely needs to be done? I just wanted to make sure it got on, got, got on the tape here. IV O2 monitor for everybody. First thing, IV fluids. Second thing, atropine. For the great majority of patients, that's going to take care of them right there. The next step, if it's beta blocker, would be glucagon. If it's calcium channel blocker, it would be calcium. And if that's not working, that's when I'm going to start to get pretty worried and start either hyperinsulinemia, euglycemia therapy, or if they're really crashing, than intravenous fat emulsion. And hopefully getting them in the ICU before you have to do anything more drastic like intraaortic balloon pump or cardiopulmonary bypass. So I was gonna ask with this picture right here what plant it was and then I realized that it says so right at the bottom. <laughs> so this is foxglove. It's a very, very pretty plant. I had some in my garden when I first moved in. 
So I'm going to be talking about digoxin toxicity and other cardiac glycosides. To help you understand the pathophysiology of poisoning by digoxin and other cardiac glycosides, more biophysics and biochemistry, yay! And to describe the optimal management of cardiac glycoside poison patients. There is this document called the Ebers Papyrus, which talks about various medical therapies that were available in ancient Egypt more than 3,000 years ago, and it actually mentions the use of cardiac glycoside. So these have been around for a long time. There are some reports of soldiers poisoned when using oleander sticks to skewer meat cooked over open fires. Uh, some have said this was done by Alexander the Great. Others report that it was done by some uh, French Napoleonic troops in Spain. And I've heard ever since I was a little kid, oh yeah, did you hear about the Boy Scout troop that got poisoned by oleander sticks? As far as I can tell, there's no truth to any of this. Some of the more clear history regarding digoxin starts with William Withering, who was an English physician and herbalist. And in 1785, he wrote an account of the foxglove and some of its medical uses with practical remarks on dropsy and other diseases. They really loved these long, drawn-out titles of books back then. And he remarked that the remedy for dropsy, which is what we would call the edema associated with congestive heart failure, had long been kept a secret by an old woman in Shropshire who had sometimes made cures after more regular practitioners had failed. Kind of interesting, that pointing out that these herbalists weren't even then considered regular medical practitioners. <clears throat> so he did some studies of foxglove, and he deemed out of all of the different herbs that this lady used, this is the only one that had the potentially active ingredient. And so he used it and investigated it and toxicity from it on 163 patients over a decade. And here's a comment that he wrote about a sample patient. Sounds a lot like CHF patients we see. Nearly in a state of suffocation, her pulse extremely weak and irregular. Ah, she had AFib. Her breath very short and laborious. Her countenance sunk her arms of leaden color. She could not lie down in bed and had neither strength nor appetite, but was extremely thirsty. I don't think I've asked my patients if they're extremely thirsty. Her stomach, legs, and thighs were greatly swollen and her urine very small in quantity. Yeah, certainly we've all seen some patients like this. With regard to digoxin and other cardiac glycosides, there's about 2,500 reported exposures in 2009 to U.S. poison control centers. A lot smaller number total exposures reported than the beta blockers and calcium channel blockers, and yet it resulted in 131 major outcomes and 23 deaths. So. This seems a little bit more risky than the beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. A lot of these deaths were related to therapeutic error because this drug has a very low therapeutic ratio. The dose somebody needs to get to make them toxic is not that much more than is actually therapeutic. And you add a little bit of renal insufficiency or liver disease onto that, and you have a recipe for destruction right there. So what are the cardiac glycosides? Well, here is a picture of what they generally look like here. They have this steroid nucleus. They have several digitoxoses on them. These are all sugar molecules. And then they have some unsaturated lactone ring. And if it is from a plant, they are called cardenolides and have a five-member ring. But there are also cardiac glycosides that are animal-derived. These are called bufodienolides. And that name was derived from bufo toads, but they're also found in other animals, as we shall shortly see. Here's some cool pictures of plants. So on the left side there, there's Digitalis purpurea, which is very beautiful. And then there's its cousin, which isn't quite so beautiful, Digitalis lanata there on the right. This is the source of medical digoxin. As I had already mentioned, oleander contains cardiac glycosides. I think one of these is a picture from the front of my house. And there's another plant called yellow oleander, which also contains cardiac glycosides, but it's not that closely related. And this is actually a very common suicidal toxin in Southeast Asia, like in southern India uh, and Sri Lanka, for instance. This is really up near the top of what people take to kill themselves, as opposed to ethanol and Tylenol here in the United States. Lily of the Valley also contains cardiac glycosides. I was able to answer a question on Jeopardy just a couple of days ago. I knew this picture. Here's another plant called squill. It used to be used as a rodenticide. 
you know, rats can't throw up, so they eat this stuff, but they can't puke it back up, and then they get cardiac glycoside toxicity. And then here's a bufo toad. Uh, oh, here we go. Here's a bufo toad right here. They have these modified parotid glands right there on their cheek, and they uh, secrete a number of uh, toxins, including, including bufodienolides. And these bufodienolides are used in traditional Chinese medicine. <clears throat> but that's not why people lick toads. Not because they want to get cardiac glycoside toxicity, but they also secrete some hallucinogenic amines, which are indole alkaloids, which are substituted serotonin, and they are reputed to give you an LSD-like intoxication. But it doesn't really seem the smartest or the safest way to go, because you're also going to be getting the cardiac glycosides. <coughs> Can you get any of those from actually just licking the toad? Well, it has to be the right toad. Yes. Just licking the skin of the toad? Uh, I have not read of any actual case reports of somebody licking a toad and getting sick. I have read many reports of people ingesting products derived from bufo toads and getting sick. Uh, Homo sapiens is another species that contains cardiac glycosides. We have endogenous bufodienolides. You might, may have heard of the endogenous digoxin-like immunoreactive substance, which sometimes might give you an apparent dig level, but it's not actually digoxin. And you see increased levels of this in pregnancy, especially in preeclampsia, and with other medical conditions as well. So how do cardiac glycosides work? They inhibit sodium-potassium ATPase. This normally pumps three sodium out of the cell and two potassium into the cell, which helps to maintain the normal low intracellular sodium level and low extracellular potassium level and to maintain a negative transmembrane potential. You're pumping more positive out, so that makes the inside negative compared to the outside. So poisoning sodium-potassium ATPase produces relative intracellular hypernatremia. All right, some pictures to depict what I was just talking about. So here is normal excitation-contraction coupling. The sodium rushes into the cell. You get this wave of depolarization. The voltage-gated calcium channels open. The calcium comes in, yada, 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 like I just mentioned before, and you get contraction of the cell. Then you get normal relaxation where, oh, come on, where the calcium gets pumped back up into the sarcoplasmic reticulum and our sodium-potassium ATPase is chugging along, getting rid of that sodium that just came in, and at the same time, we're using the sodium gradient to help pump a little bit more of the calcium outside of the cell. That's what normally happens in diastole. When we have therapeutic sodium-potassium ATPase inhibition, we don't pump as much potass potassium, uh, excuse me, we don't pump as much sodium out or as much potassium in, so we end up with extracellular hyperkalemia and intracellular hypernatremia. This relative intracellular hypernatremia inhibits the efficiency of this antiporter, so we get relative intracellular hypercalcemia, but then we pump that all up into the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So the next time a signal comes by, we release a little bit more calcium and that gives us increased inotropy, which is what we want when we're using this therapeutically for someone, say, with AFib and a little bit of congestive heart failure. But at toxic doses, this just goes way overboard. We get <coughs> way too much intracellular sodium, way too much intracellular calcium, and that actually increases our resting membrane potential. So that decreases the threshold for depolarization, and you get increased automaticity, you're predisposed to all sorts of dysrhythmias. And eventually, at some point, the calcium can overwhelm the sarcoplasmic reticulum's ability to resequester it, and the heart can't relax. And you can actually go into, potentially, systolic arrest, sometimes called a stone heart, where it just clenches down and it can't relax. Well, that person is obviously not going to do well. There are autonomic effects as well. So the same sort of change in the resting membrane potential happens in other cells. And if we do this at the carotid bodies, it causes a reflex increase in vagal tone because the carotid bodies are interpreting this relative depolarization as hypertension. 
signal goes up to the brain stem. Brain stem says, oh, I'm hypertensive. Let me slow the heart rate down by increasing my vagal tone. So you get increased cholinergic tone down through the vagus nerve. So with therapeutic doses, you get a decreased heart rate, and you get decreased conduction rate through the SA and AV nodes. That decreases your ventricular response to supraventricular arrhythmias, and that's great for atrial fibrillation. So actually, digoxin seems like a, a pretty cool drug for someone who's not terribly sick with AFib and not terribly sick with CHF. You can see all sorts of interesting EKG changes. Decreased QT segment, increasing PR interval, ST and T wave forces opposite in direction to the major QRS forces, and this gives you the so-called uh, DIG effect, or a reverse Nike swoosh, sometimes called a Salvador Dali mustache. So here's an EKG showing the DIG effect right here. You tend to see it best out in V4, V5, V6, kind of a reverse Nike swoosh. As I'd already mentioned, digoxin has a neurotherapeutic index. It doesn't take much change in the dosing or change in the patient's renal uh, status to become toxic. It has a high volume of distribution, so it's all tucked up in the tissues and it's not in the blood where we can actually access it to remove it by extracorneal removal uh, methods. Drug interactions are common, and a lot of the people who are on DIG are on a lot of drugs. And there's a lot of antibiotics that can kill the gut bacteria that also normally inactivate digoxin, so that's another way that you can get an adverse drug-drug interaction causing digoxin toxicity. Withering, who studied toxicity a long time ago, says the foxglove, when given in large and quickly repeated doses, occasions sickness, vomiting, purging. I'm not quite sure what the difference is there between vomiting and purging. Giddiness, confused vision. Objects appear in green or yellow. Increased secretion of urine, slow pulse, even as low as 35 in a minute. Cold sweats, convulsions, syncope, death. You know, change the words a little bit, and that's just the same as any pharmacology textbook nowadays. Oh, I wanted to go back just a little bit. So this picture right here, who knows what this is? That's by Van Gogh. It's called Sunflowers. And there is a number of people who think that the reason why he was using so much yellow at that point in his career is that he was taking cardiac glycosides and was having xanthopsia. So I already talked about cardiac toxicity. What about non-cardiac toxicity from digoxin and cardiac glycosides. Acutely, you'll get nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. You can get all sorts of CNS effects, lethargy, confusion, weakness. With chronic toxicity, you get all the same kind of symptoms, but they're much more insidious in onset and so less obvious. So it's much more common that the person will come in for some agitation or altered mental status. They did have GI effects, but they weren't very severe and nobody really bothered to, to mention it because they didn't think it was a big issue. Visual complaints are more commonly seen with chronic toxicity, and it's not just seeing yellow. <coughs> There's all sorts of other problems you can get, amblyopia, photophobia, blurring, scotomata, and halos. <coughs> Hyperkalemia, I already mentioned, because you're not uh, handling your potassium correctly due to inhibition of sodium potassium ATPS, you have decreased potassium influx into many tissues, not just the heart, but all of skeletal muscle as well. And the degree of hyperkalemia actually is a better prognostic indicator for if the patient's going to live or die than EKG changes or the serum digoxin level. So here's a study here that I quote by Chantal Bismuth from uh, Paris. This is pretty old, 1973. This was essentially before Digibind and Digifab were available. And they found out that if the potassium level was less than five, pretty much everybody survives. If it's greater than five and a half, pretty much everybody dies. And in between five and five and a half, about 50% die. Now that's without using Digibind or Digifab. The numbers, I'm sure, are better nowadays, but if you didn't give them Digibind or Digifab, you could expect just some relatively mild increase in the potassium uh, is indicative of uh, very serious poisoning. On the other hand, a lot of these patients are also on concomitant diuretics, and so they might be hypokalemic, which actually worsens the sodium potassium ATPase blockade. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. 
Nearly every type of cardiac dysrhythmia is possible, except you're not gonna see rapidly conducted supraventricular tachydysrhythmias because of this increased vagal tone kind of blocking at the AV node. Ventricular ectopy is the most common sign, and the first sign of cardiac toxicity from uh, digoxin and other cardiac glycosides in 10 to 15%. AV junctional block with increased automaticity is kind of the classic dig toxic rhythm, and that's seen in about 30 to 40% of patients. So now we're going to be playing a little game called Name That Arrhythmia. <clears throat> so as I mentioned before, if you have supraventricular tachycardia with block, that is very classic. So this is one of the most classic rhythms right here, atrial tachycardia, <coughs> sometimes called paroxysmal atrial tachycardia with two to one block. And what do we have here? Any guesses? One, two, three? Twenty to one block. I'm guessing somebody's going on number three right there. <clears throat> so at the top again, we've got PAT with block. In the middle, we got junctional tachycardia with block, and at the bottom, we got atrial flutter with massive <laughs> AV block. Like I said before, you can see just about anything with dig toxicity. Here's another pretty classic one, which is just. Just sinus bradycardia, pretty extreme sinus bradycardia, like withering set with pulses down to 35 a minute. I imagine this one's slower than that. It's more like 20 to me. What we see here is, look at all those P waves. And the ventricles just don't care. <laughs> and this one kind of looks like the number three rhythm that I had up there before, where we got atrial flutter with variable but pretty pronounced block. There is one particular dysrhythmia called bidirectional ventricular tachycardia, which is said to be pathognomonic for severe cardiac glycoside toxicity. So this is the tach, but every other beat looks different. So it's almost like electrical alternands, but instead of being sinus, it's VTAC electrical alternands. And it might be from two different foci, each trying to make VTAC work, and they just shift from one to the other. Diagnostic testing for digoxin toxicity. In general, ditch toxic patients are going to have an elevated serum concentration. Isn't that the sine qua non of poisoning? At least six hours post-ingestion. The levels can be higher than that early after ingestion because the drug is still distributing to the tissues. As I mentioned before, as a high volume of distribution, it's only going to cause its effect when it's in the tissues, not just when it's elevated in the blood. Now, if someone who was exposed to a non-digoxin cardiac glycoside, they might have an elevated dig level, or they might not. It all depends on the particular toxin involved and the company that made that particular assay, how much cross-reactivity there is. Therapy, I'm going to skip ABC. Uh, GID contamination for dig. The efficacy of this is probably going to be limited due to a couple of things. Number one, acute toxicity makes you vomit already. And number two, they're pretty rapidly absorbed. On the other hand, if you can keep down activated charcoal, that can interrupt enterohepatic circulation. So even giving charcoal late, there's some theoretic basis for it. And then some more advanced GID contamination options are cholestyramine or cholestopol, because these are supposed to bind to bile acids, which have a steroid nucleus. And these drugs have a steroid nucleus, too. But the most exciting thing is to treat this with an antidote, with digoxin-specific antibody fragments. There are two products commercially available. There's Digibind and Digifab. And they are, for all intents and purposes, the same thing. They're fab fragments from sheep. They're just made by different companies. The amount in each vial differs by a tiny amount, less than 5%. So when would you give fab fragments for cardiac glycoside poisoning? The number one reason. The only one you really need to remember is if they ha are having life-threatening dysrhythmias in the face of an elevated digoxin level. That is life-threatening digoxin toxicity. If they took an acute overdose and they're hyperkalemic based upon Dr. Bismuth's study from the 1970s, yeah, I would give it because otherwise there's a pretty good chance they might die without it. 
if they have chronic toxicity and are having some significant complication like dys dysrhythmias, very incapacitating GI symptoms, significant altered mental status or renal insufficiency, so they're not going to be getting rid of this uh, anytime soon. And then there's other potential indications too based upon do you have a super high level that's just ridiculously high, we want to get that out of your body before it redistributes or if you just took a ridiculously high amount. So if, I, you, if you have renal failure for some reason and you give somebody the fat fragments, do you need to dialyze them to get rid of the question was, if somebody has renal failure and you treat them with fab fragments, do they then need to be dialyzed because otherwise they're not going to get rid of it? Dialysis does not work very well at all because the drug is very large and it's not very water soluble. It has a very high volume of distribution. So even if you clear it from the serum, you're not really clearing it from the body. And now you're binding it to a large bulky protein molecule, which makes it even less accessible. So in general, dialysis doesn't work for DIG whether or not you give fat. And I have heard a couple of renal fellows bemoaning the fact that they get consulted frequently for DIG toxicity and their response has to be, we can't help you. How do you dose the fat? If you've got no idea how much they took, but you know that they're ditch toxic, or you highly suspect it and you want to treat it, 10 to 20 vials for a, an acute overdose. If it's chronic toxicity, it's fairly likely that they don't have as huge a uh, total burden in their body, and they just slowly crept up there, and you can start them with a lower dose, three to six vials in an adult. Now, this is a very expensive uh, medicine, but compared to being in the ICU for a couple of days, not really all that bad. On the other hand, if you did know how many pills somebody took, you can calculate how many vials they need. Each vial will inactivate about a half a milligram of digoxin. So you figure out the dose, divide it by a half milligram, that's the number of vials. On the other hand, if all you have is a digoxin serum level, and you're assuming they're at equilibrium, which pretty much means it has to be chronic toxicity, you take the serum dig level, you multiply it by the weight in kilos, and divide by 100. Very simple calculation. And you're usually going to end up with something in the 3 to 6 vial range. How do you administer it? I'm going to briefly say you mix it up and you give it IV. Alternate therapies if fab is unavailable. These are pretty much all historical treatments used in the 70s, maybe the 80s, when fab was still becoming more available. Phenytoin is used occasionally for digoxin toxicity. You give it slow IV. Nobody's ever checked phosphenitoin because this is pretty much an out-of-date uh, therapy, and phosphenitoin came along too late. Lidocaine has also been used. Atropine, obviously, for Brady dysrhythmias. I have no problems with that. That seems kind of modern. Class 1A antiarrhythmics uh, are said to be contraindicated. And pacemakers or cardioversion are pretty unlikely to help, probably even less likely than for beta blockers and calcium channel blockers. Now, patients with acute ditch toxicity are very likely to be hyperkalemic. Do we need to treat it, and how do we treat it? Well, it is going to correct if you give fab therapy. It is certainly OK to use insulin and glucose, to use bicarb, to use KXLate, to dialyze the person, although not to get rid of the ditch. But you are said to want to avoid calcium. Now, I already showed you earlier how the cells become intracellularly overloaded with calcium with ditch toxicity. So now you're giving them more calcium. You can theoretically induce the systolic arrest, a stone heart. Fortunately, this doesn't happen every time. In fact, it's very rare. And there was an article that I saw published just within the last couple of months in the Journal of Medical Toxicology where this was looked at in a university medical center over the course of, say, 10 or 15 years, and they couldn't find even one case of it. It's certainly something that you can do in the lab with dogs, but does it actually happen in people? You see this patient is hyperkalemic. You don't know yet that it's ditch toxicity. They have an abnormal EKG, so you go, aha, I'm going to give calcium. Well, according to the ACLS algorithms, it says avoid it, but does it actually result in death? Probably very rarely, if at all.
I already mentioned that extracorporeal removal of DIG really doesn't work because its volume of distribution and protein binding is too high. If you give fab fragments and then measure a DIG level again, it's going to be sky high. It could be 15, it could be 20. But that's both the bound and the unbound DIG, and it's only the unbound DIG that causes any effect. So the number means nothing. Only if you can, at your uh, institution, order a free digoxin level does it matter. And a couple of cool cardiac glycoside cases I wanted to mention. This is a New England journal, Contamination of Botanical Dietary Supplements by Digitalis Linata. There was a husband and wife using a cleansing botanical supplement. They developed nausea, palpitations, bradycardia, and had a DIG effect on their EKG. The emergency physician sent DIG levels, and they were positive. And it turns out that this product was supposed to contain a plant called plantain. Not the banana one, but another plant that is also called plantain. But there was some mislabeling that happened where this herbal supplement was being made, and it actually contained Digitalis linata. Here is a report from Morbidity Mortality Weekly Report, deaths associated with a purported aphrodisiac. In New York City, five previously healthy men died of cardiac dysrhythmias after ingesting a substance that was marketed as a topical aphrodisiac, but they didn't even read the label. You're supposed to rub this on your penis, and uh, it's called Love Stone or Rock Hard, and these guys didn't realize that it was supposed to be topical. They took it PO, and they just gave themselves a massive overdose of bufodienolines. Oleander poisoning, treatment with digoxin-specific fab antibody fragments. This was a 37-year-old guy who presented shortly after eating a handful of oleander leaves. He arrived bradycardic with nodal arrest and junctional escape. He was given five vials of digibind. They actually sent off a pretreatment dig level and it was 1.5, but what does that really mean in terms of how poisoned he was? Because it's not a one-for-one -one oleandrin to digoxin. After treatment, he stabilized and was ultimately sent to psych. I don't know why he needed to be in the hospital five days. Okay, so let's get all thought, our thoughts all in order here. There is a differential diagnosis for toxin-induced <coughs> bradycardia, which can include all of the agents that I've mentioned today. Beta-adrenergic blockers, the clues to this are, tends to cause more CNS depression than calcium channel blockers. You might be slightly hyperkalemic. You might be hypoglycemic. And you might have prolonged PR due to uh, block, and your QRS can be narrow, or it might be widened, especially if you took propranolol, which has sodium channel blocking effects. With calcium channel blockers, in contrast to beta-adrenergic blockers, mentation tends to be preserved even if the patient's profoundly hypotensive. They are very likely, I should say reasonably likely, to be hyperglycemic because of decreased insulin release and they can also have other EKG changes due to block. Cardiac glycosides acutely have prominent vomiting, hyperkalemia. If it's chronic, they might be hypokalemic from concomitant diuretics. Blood pressure is usually preserved initially. Mentation is usually preserved initially, but with chronic toxicity, they can present with altered mental status. There are characteristic ST changes, and you get that Salvador Dali swoosh and all sorts of ventricular dysrhythmias, especially paroxysmal atrial tachycardia with block. If you take a large overdose of sodium channel blockers, you can also present with a bradycardia. You'll also present with altered mental status, seizures, hypotension, and a wide QRS. Cholinergic agents can give you a toxic bradycardia, but you're probably going to see a lot of other signs and symptoms associated with a cholinergic toxidrome, and you will have a sinus bradycardia. Alpha-1 adrenergic agonists can raise your blood pressure, and you get a reflex sinus uh, bradycardia. I actually first made this slide quite a long time ago when phenylpropanolamine used to be available over-the-counter as a weight loss supplement, and it actually worked reasonably well. It was associated with an increase in intracranial hemorrhage, though, so that's why it was taken off the market. Alpha-2 adrenergic agonists can also give you a toxic bradycardia. Uh, the question was, was uh, PPA part of FenFen? No, it was not. So drugs like clonidine and other imidazolines will cause a sinus bradycardia due to decreased central sympathetic output and they also cause what looks a lot like an opioid toxidrome. Small pupils, CNS depression, respiratory depression. And then sedative hypnotics 
may cause CNS depression associated with sinus bradycardia, and GHB is very classic for presenting with CNS depression and sinus bradycardia and nothing else. With the clonidine? Yes, question about clonidine. Do you give them Narcan? There was, the question was, since it looks like an opioid toxidrome with clonidine and the other imidazolines, do you give naloxone? The answer is yes, certainly, by all means. It's not going to hurt anybody. Even if you know it's clonidine? There are reports, there are authorities, there are chapters that say that it works. The difficulty is that the normal clinical course of an imidazoline overdose is waxing and waning altered mental status. So if somebody wakes up, was it really because you gave them the Narcan? On the other hand, there is, there is some literature out there that talks about increased endogenous opioids. So it's essentially as clear as mud. Yeah, if it looks like an opioid toxidrome, go ahead and give Narcan if you want. It's not going to hurt them. So you predicted my slide about questions. And uh, now I'm at the end. Are there any more questions? No, of course not. Everybody waits until I'm done talking before they actually ask the questions. So please go on to be super docs. Thank you.